The European Patent Office podcasts bring you an insight into the technology and innovation shaping the world. Hello and welcome to this podcast from the European Patent Office, in which we will be discussing the evolution of vaccine technologies over the last decade. Three years ago, the global market for vaccines was estimated at 33 billion US dollars, barely 2.5% of the global market for pharmaceuticals as a whole. But the COVID-19 pandemic has put vaccines into the spotlight. So what are the issues when innovating in immunology? My name is Jeremy Philpot, and I work in communication at the European Patent Office. Joining me today are two experienced patent examiners in the field of vaccines. First, I'm pleased to welcome Helena Dominguez. She started her career at the EMBL in Heidelberg in 1995. She joined the EPO 22 years ago and is currently working in immunology. Welcome, Helena. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be here today. And Helena's colleague is Zoran Silanchek. Zoran started his career at UIC in Chicago in 1996. He came to join the EPO 16 years ago and, like Helena, is working in immunology, vaccines and antibodies. Welcome, Zoran. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Helena. I'm delighted to be here today. Okay, so I'm inspired by what the patent index is showing in terms of the latest stats for 2021. Uh, Pharmaceuticals, one of the top 10 technology fields and received over 9,000 applications last year, and that's up 6.9%. So that's an above average increase. You've been looking at the figures as well. Any particular patterns that you see there? Well, Jeremy, I mean, uh, one thing is very clear is that the market seems to be dominated by uh, the US and Europe. You know, they have a a share that is roughly equal. You know, 39% of the filings come from Europe, 40% from the US. And the market is definitely dominated by a couple of big pharma companies, around five of them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we should not forget that this was how things looked like before the pandemic hit. You know, things changed a bit. And, you know, you mentioned that the market, the value of the market was around 33 billion, but it was in 2019. Yeah. You know, last year in 2021, one single COVID-19 vaccine, you know, the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine sold around 35 billion. So one single product, (laughs) you know, is worth 2.5% of the pharmaceutical market. And that's how much the pandemic has changed things. Clearly, there is a big change going on there. That the numbers, you know, the industry-wide numbers reported for 2019 were showing that anti-cancer medications, for example, are four times the amount of the, the global market valuation for vaccines. But yeah, that was 2019. And I think I think the emphasis now is is completely changing. Uh, I think it's a relief to realize that the industry is waking up to prevention is better than cure. And that for much less money, you can save millions more lives spending on the development of vaccines than on actually trying to cure disease. If you can prevent disease, you get a much bigger return on your investment. This is the most effective strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I I want to dig down a little bit into some of the trends specific to the vaccines. We've seen that the vaccine development in 2020 and 21 seemed to be remarkably fast in comparison with how long it normally takes, but it wasn't really a standing start. There'd been developments already going on. Well, you know, uh, 
decades of research, Jeremy, decades of research, there was an immense amount of knowledge gathered from uh, previous studies on coronaviruses. And, you know, and as I remember the SRS-CoV-1 in 2002, and also the MERS that hit around 2012, you know, so there was a lot of, inv- of already research done on those viruses. And uh, you might also remember from the patent index that we really saw a peak in filings around these time periods, you know, so there was really an active research. And, you know, and the knowledge that was gathered during these uh, scientific studies, they really informed a lot of, of, of decisions that, were, that had to be made uh, very rapidly in the pandemic. You're right. There were these spikes. I remember back in, in 2003, 2004, I saw the exactly. chart. Yeah. And, you know, we knew, for example, that and something that was very precious, you know, that the spike protein was the key antigen. And, you know, th- this saves an enormous amount of time that we, get, we could immediately progress. And we also knew how to engineer the spike in order to make an effective vaccine. But, I mean, Soran, you might want to say a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. It was not merely sufficient to take the spike protein of SARS-2 or a part of it and use it as a vaccine. And this has to do with the biology of coronaviruses, SARS and MERS as alike, as you mentioned. They all rely on a similar mechanism of action. And spikes expressed on the surface of the virus and binds target cells to gain entry. And that's a matter of life and death for the virus because it cannot persist for long outside of living cells. But this spike protein assumes different shapes. We call them conformations. So it was essential to engineer a stable spike protein, which is locked in this most relevant conformation. And this is how we could reap the benefits of the hard work we've done on MERS and SARS before, because no fresh research was required on SARS-2. It was more like plug and play, basically, on what we knew before. Almost sort of technology that, that was maybe 5, 10, 15 years old as a consequence of SARS two decades ago, but sort of what, sitting on the shelf or in a sort of modular way or just building on this research that had already been done? Well, you know, we were really building on research that, that had been done and not only regarding the SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, you know, there was a lot of research that was done, for example, on stabilizing the mRNA molecules. We knew how to do that. Luckily for us, we also knew when the pandemic hit how to deliver the mRNA molecules. Because, you know, without an effective delivery system, there would have been no vaccine. You know, and these vaccines, these mRNA uh, vaccines are delivered with something called lipid nanoparticles. You have to think about this as tiny balls of fat. And inside, there are the mRNA molecules. These lipid nanoparticles, they protect the mRNA and also shuttle the mRNA into the cells by fusing with the cell membranes. They are quite difficult to develop, you know. There were decades of research into this. And one particular molecule that you can find in these lipid nanoparticles, the ionizable lipids, they were really a challenge. But they stabilized the mRNA inside the nanoparticle. And because they are neutral under physiological pH, they are not toxic. And they really made it possible to deliver the mRNA using lipid nanoparticles. The LNPs... These lipid nanoparticles, are some, I read somewhere, are the unsung hero of mRNA vaccine development. And I fully agree with that. And the knowledge that was there and could be used was there because 
people have been working with so-called small interference RNA before. These are small pieces of RNA that are delivered to silent genes and that they haven't already been delivered using LNPs. So we built on this knowledge as well. And now the knowledge we are gathering and we are learning from delivery studies with the mRNA vaccines will help us also deliver other mRNA-based therapies and DNA gene therapies and even CRISPR gene editing therapies. You know, So actually, this is how science works. It builds on what is already known, and this has helped us a lot. Yeah. Standing on the shoulders of giants, I think, is the, is the metaphor that's often used. It's been a huge amount of knowledge and information sharing going around, I mean, helped not least by the patent system. I can't resist plugging the patent system that we're all part of, but patents are part of that knowledge transfer because um, researchers anywhere can read what others are up to. And maybe we'll come back to that point a little bit later, but there was something else that I wanted to look at first. Is there a shakeup? in the profile of the applicants filing for patent protection to the EPO. Traditionally, we look at like the big pharma companies, the, you know, the, the top five or 10 pharma companies have, have sort of dominated the filing league tables previously at the EPO in the patent index. But I see changes coming in terms of smaller players. But what are you seeing in terms of the technical fields that you're working in and the typical applicants that come onto your desks? Yes, Jeremy, we are talking actually vaccines now. Yeah, yeah. Data speaks for itself. According to the recent WIPO study published beginning of March, roughly half of applicants are universities and public research organizations. Wow. Yeah, and then they come small uh, and medium enterprises. At the, at the end, contrary to what one may expect, so-called big pharma. How do they come to market? How do they bring their products to market? Because, you know, you don't go into the pharmacy and say, oh, I want to buy the vaccine from the university of so-and-so. I mean, you're looking for the big name brand on the, the outside of the box and the medicines that you get. Small and medium enterprises in academia, they do research and they don't have the capacity to make the product because you need a manufacturing facility with the know-how. You have to scale it up to make vast amounts of product with the required quality. And on top of that, you have to organize complex and expensive clinical trials. And all of this they cannot do. Basically, they work on technologies that translate into patent applications they file. Yeah. And Jeremy, if I may add something on that, you know. Yeah, please. Vaccines are very complex biological products. The IP landscape is very complex. It's not like one product, one patent. You know, there are many patents, there are many <laughs> patents that, that, that are linked to, to, to a particular vaccine. And, you know, uh, so there are many patents behind each vaccine uh, from upstream technologies that, that are owned, like Zoran said, by academia or by SMEs. You know, navigating this complex landscape requires a really specialist knowledge and also financial resources. And very often, academia and SMEs cannot easily afford this type of knowledge. That's why it's important to work together with, with, with the big pharma, you know, and to find ways to cooperate and bring things forward. And what we have seen with the pandemic, you know, remember at the beginning, we, we said that the market in 2019 was dominated by like five big pharma companies that have an oligopoly. This oligopoly has been completely disrupted because look at all these new entrants into the field.
feel like BioNTech, Curvac, Moderna, you know, nobody had heard about yeah. these companies before. And they are uh, cooperating and are engaging in cooperation with big pharma companies. Look, BioNTech was very smart and partnered with Pfizer from the very beginning. Yes. This yeah. was amazingly successful, as we all know. And CureVac is now joining forces with GSK. And look, even the big pharma, they are working together. Sanofi and GS- JSK or GSK are developing a COVID vaccine together. I think it's clear that uh, knowledge and technology sharing will bring us forward. And no, we, we have to create synergies. I've seen that there are commentators in the IP field wondering if maybe we need to move to a patent pooling business model for vaccine development because we have these players who are upstream as you described them helena who are the small startups and spin outs and so on they're developing the platform technologies the things that the downstream players big pharma need to put product on the market they don't have necessarily the capacity to do complex one-on-one ip licensing deals with big pharma and maybe a pooling model will reduce that administrative burden on them but also make sure that they get a fair share of profits that are made because let's face it that money has to flow back upstream to the people putting in the time and the effort and the brain work to develop these wonderful new sciences i also want to touch on this phenomenon of the so-called the patent intensive industries so those industries which make above average use of the patent system we as epo partnering with eu ipo we've done studies on this that show that the patent intensive industries pay significantly above average wages and it's a premium of i think about 72 percent you know yeah. on top of average for salaries there they're disproportionately high contribution to GDP and to employment as a whole. So, you know, these are all good things. And when we think about patent-intensive industries, we tend to think about products like smartphones, but vaccines are also very patent-intensive. And much riskier, Jeremy, much riskier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) With a very high failure rate. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You've got a very good point there. I mean, electronics development has got a lot of investment, but the risk of failure, the risk of seeing no return whatsoever on that spend is pretty high. Yeah, because vaccines are biopharmaceuticals. So it's, it's a risky business. And investors, including venture capitalists, know this very well. This is not for the faint of heart. But as we as <laughs> we just discussed, uh, it may sound a bit odd, but we can call ourselves fortunate that these technologies were mature enough when the pandemic hit and they could swiftly be deployed. But it's a risky business because, as we discussed, it's the efficacy and safety has to be proven in expensive clinical trials. But when you have an incentive, as we had, and you are fueled by abundant funding, also public funding, and you're ready to take risks and to run these trials, you can bring very, very powerful products to the clinic. And now we also know that this technology works and it opens many doors to to this. Maybe I I can say just a bit more the position of these small enterprise, small universities, uh, SMEs, in basically in, in the entire landscape, because they do not have a final product. They cannot go to the venture capitalists no. and say, I'm developing uh, an antibody against, I don't know, to certain interleukin-6 to treat whatever. 
They are working on technology, so it may sound a bit abstract to the venture capitalists. But I think uh, also these recent examples actually show us that we should bear in mind that before the product comes the technology. And this technology is, is versatile. It fits many different uses and purposes. And I think that maybe venture capitalists should view it that way that this is not a single product, but basically it may be a, an umbrella of possible yes. future products based on this technology. Probably it's also for our applicants or companies or universities, it's also probably this investor relationship is a big thing, but also a very creative IP strategy to navigate through this landscape to licensing and cross-licensing to provide funding. And funding is crucial and IP brings funding. So it's all... Uh, all connected. Yeah, I mean, the venture capitalist wants to be reassured that the investments that they make, if they then turn into something that's profitable, is guaranteed to bring money back. And that's 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 where, where the patents come in. But Helena rightly makes the point about risk. And, you know, quite a lot of the time, they pour in millions and get nothing back. Um, and, and that is one of the things that annoys me when I, I see media reports about, oh, this medicine costs so many million to make, and it makes so many millions in profits for this company. This sort of assumption that as soon as any one medicine has gone into profit, in other words, it's cleared its development costs, that somehow that medicine should be free. Because in that equation, you've completely ignored the 10 other medicines that didn't make it to market and haven't returned a cent and also cost hundreds of millions to develop. So the handful of medicines that actually make it to market and turn a profit are not only just having to clear their own costs, they're having to clear the costs of all of the, this wreckage on the runway, all these crashed and failed pharmaceutical and vaccine projects that never saw the light of day. Yeah, Jeremy, it's really impressive because, you know, uh, I don't want to, you know, to cite concrete numbers because I can't remember them, but the rate of failure is quite high. You see, how much money has to be recovered in order to, to have a decent return on investment. Another way, you know, to help your return on investment and if you ha- is also to have a good portfolio, a good IP portfolio, and also to explore it and to capitalize it. I see this very well in many American universities, you know, and I would like to see this more and more also in Europe uh, because it's important to create the IP portfolios and to manage them in, in a profitable manner. And I, I have the feeling that in Europe, academia is still a bit, let's put it, not very IP-oriented. Oh, hell no. We've seen this too often. My heart breaks. You're absolutely right. We see it in the European Inventor Award. I've lost count of how many times with the European Inventor Award, a successful European inventor has set up his or her startup company in the United States, because that's where the venture capital was. This story particularly plays out in the pharma and vaccine sector. Yeah, and and it hurts, you know, it hurts. Yeah, it hurts. You see, sometimes researchers and people tend to forget that uh, patent documents also get published, you know, not only scientific publications, you know. And if you allow me, I'm going to talk now about something I really, really think it's, it's, it's a crown jewel, Spasnet, uh-huh. you know, that we have, you know, that makes 130 million patent documents freely available 
to anyone across the globe. And if you allow me, you know, I will also mention the COVID-19 platform, which we developed, and I, I think we can be proud of it, because it is freely available on our website, and it allows anyone interested in COVID vaccines or COVID technologies, related technologies, to retrieve relevant documents from SpaceNet with a mouse click. Yeah. And so I think this is you know, a service DPO can be proud of. And I think we all would like to see an increase in venture capital investment in Europe. And because there's a lot of room for increasing the capitalization of IP portfolios and the benefits would be enormous in terms of innovation and economic growth. I hope you agree. Yeah, absolutely. I really like the Fighting Coronavirus platform. Uh, and I, th I think it's an astonishing piece of work by Helena Zarin and, and the other colleagues in the examining coalface of, of the EPO because it's over 300 search strategies already developed by the relevant experts that are non-expert, a university researcher, somebody in a startup who knows that who knows their science really well, but that they're not conversant necessarily in investigating patent databases. Our examiners have put all their brilliant knowledge into these ready-baked search strategies. And you know, there's stuff there on bioinformatics, there's stuff there on vaccines, there's stuff there on um, therapeutics. Therapeutics, but also it's the diagnostics. I yes. was I was in there the other day looking at the stuff on uh, diagnostic technologies and so on, as well as even stuff on just like how many patent applications filed for face masks or ventilators and things like that. It's a fascinating, really, really useful resource. Now, I'm going to draw us towards the close because before we finish, I want to know what are you seeing coming across your desks these days? So you know, what does the future hold? What do you wish was coming across your desk? What, what technology do you think we're missing or is, is going to be the next big thing? Well, look, Jeremy, all technologies are useful according to their purpose. But of course, the advent of uh, the mRNA technology platform has opened up an enormous window of opportunity beyond preventive vaccines. Just look at, at cancer treatment and, mm -hmm. and how many met needs there are there. I think we will be seeing an enormous amount of research in this field. I am really looking forward to see how effective these treatments are and how the field develops. Yeah, there are many, many exciting things, if I, if I can interrupt. And one of them is uh, new forms of vaccine delivery, like vaccines that you can deliver to the nose or the mouth, like uh, we call them intranasal or oral administration. So basically, you... Uh, go to a pharmacy and you pick up the spray that you can then administer it yourself. It's hassle-free and uh, needle-free. And one more thing is when you get the jab, actually you get it in the muscle, in the arm, and it's not where actually the coronavirus enters the body. <laughs> it enters through the nose usually. Exactly. So just think if you, if you mimic this natural route of infection, this can only be beneficial for affording protection and also breaking the chain of transmission. I, I'm very sanguine actually about this. I've not thought of it in those terms before, but you're right. If the route of access for the vaccine is complementary or similar to the route that the actual virus would enter, it's got to be better for teaching the body how to respond. So it's not only conceivable, but actually it's shown empirically. But it's appealing as a concept, but actually it's also empirically has been shown. And I hope that there would be more breakthroughs there. 
and fewer needles, which we've all got to welcome. We're out of time. I'm really sorry. I've got to bring this chat to a close. It's been fascinating having a chat with you both. Thanks for all that you've shared. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. The EPO publishes fresh podcasts every week on new technologies, studies into the economic impact of patents, as well as advice for innovators. So listen out for more podcasts soon including two others in which my guests explain the trends revealed by the latest patent index for 2021. But for today, from Helena, Zoran and myself, it's goodbye. Adeus. Até uma próxima oportunidade. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. Subscribe to the European Patent Office's podcast channel, Talk Innovation at epo.org or on your favourite podcast platform. Let's talk innovation.